This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, we're joined by Doug Schweitzer, Alberta's Minister of Jobs, Economy and Innovation, a pretty rosy picture painted in the latest fiscal update. Ottawa has announced details on a public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. We'll go through what we can expect to find out. And Elon Musk, his deal to buy Twitter has been approved by the Board of Directors. The province's economy, jobs and innovation minister delivered a first quarter update on Friday, painting a very rosy picture about Alberta's financial outlook. And let there be no doubt, there are a lot of very positive indicators right now. Things are looking very good in a number of different areas. But you know how it is with stats. Sometimes you can dig a little deeper. So that's what we're going to do. And we are thrilled that uh, Doug Schweitzer could join us to do just that today. Uh, Minister, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. Um, To start off, definitely, I mean, that's the headline. Things are looking pretty good in the province of Alberta. Forecasted GDP growth of about 5.5%, the strongest in the country. Overall, the snapshot, things look pretty good, right? Well, when you take a look at where we were two years ago when we started our recovery plan, I mean, you couldn't really have even painted a better picture than where we are right now. We're more diversified than ever. Tech sector is growing. Film industry is growing. And the conventional driver of our economy, the energy industry, is really hitting its stride. So Alberta is really on the right track right now. Um, it breaks down to a number of different areas, but I think the ones that people talk about a lot, you know, it's in your job title, is jobs. Jobs, jobs, jobs. We always talk about that. Um, we're seeing some job gains in Alberta, but when you contrast it to the rest of the country, we're still lagging. You know, we've got record low unemployment nationally. Alberta's still up over 6%, you know, the highest of any mainland province. So things are moving in the right direction. But why are we lagging behind? Well, we started off in a tougher spot than most places across Canada. But we take a look at the trajectory for this year. It's at 6.5% unemployment across Alberta. This is the best we've had since 2018 at the end of that year. We're expecting that numbers are going to continue to improve throughout this year, drop well below 6% as we get into the second half of 2022. That's a good news story. We also have a high labor participation rate. We have the highest employment rate. So most people working as a percentage of your population in the entire country, that's a good thing as well. And we're expecting, as the rest of the country starts to cool down a little bit, Alberta's economy is going to continue to be very, very hot, and we're going to continue to see job growth in Alberta. Uh, when it comes to wages, we're also lagging behind there. We're, we're, we're seeing uh, about a 2% increase in wages year over year. Uh, it's higher everywhere else in the country. What's going on there? Well, we still have very high, I mean, above the national average when it comes to wages. And yeah, but that gap's getting jobs. thinner, as you know. Well, what this is the thing that's interesting. You've got these energy companies in Alberta in particular. They've been very disciplined over the last seven years. But when you talk to the oil field service companies, and they're, they're arm wrestling right now with those energy companies over price. And they know that if they're going to make the demand and make sure that they can get these projects done, they're going to have to start paying a little bit more. We're starting to see that traction happen. And we're expecting, again, as the year progresses, that wages will go up as well. Um, in terms of where we are with energy, and we know that that's the main driver, obviously, as you said, um, prices 
higher than we've seen ever before in, in a lot of cases at fuel pumps and, 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 you know, I mean, we know what's going on in the energy sector right now. Um, how much of a factor is that? Because you know that's what critics are saying. Well, look what's going on with the price of oil. That drives everything. You know, it's, it's over 75% of the production in Alberta. I mean, that's what happens. That's why we're seeing such good numbers. Well, we take a look at where the job growth is happening, though. Take a look at the tech sector. We went from being at about $37 million of venture capital investment in 2017 and up to $561 million last year. In the first quarter of this year, well over $200 million in venture capital. I mean, that's going to create thousands of jobs in Alberta. We're seeing massive demand. In our most recent budget, we put $600 million into skills and talent. The only thing that can hold back and constrain growth in Alberta right now is labor shortages. Mm. We really have to make sure that the skills align with the job opportunities and we're seeing particularly in the tech and innovation space alberta is on the map like we weren't on the map like five years ago we are on the map now both calgary and edmonton are growing big time in the tech space a couple of things you mentioned there investment uh you know like 200 million in venture capital this year 561 million last year fantastic sounds like a great number that's four percent of venture capital investment nationally four percent of canadian investment is in alberta Take a look at the venture capital trend. Venture capital is a hockey stick. And right now, Vancouver and Toronto, they were ahead of the curve about three to five years, at least, in venture capital and tech and innovation space, maybe in Toronto a decade. But when you take a look at where we are, we had a record number of what they call Series A financing, so early stage financing last year alone. We're starting to see that again. That turned into later stage financing. We're starting to see the beginning of what they call Series B and C financing, which are their later and scaling stage. And take a look at where we're going to be this year. Again, that's why we broke our record again in the first quarter of this year. These companies are getting bigger. They're getting stronger. They're getting you know hiring and scaling, going from 50 employees one year to 300 the next to 500 the year after that. We're going to continue to see a robust industry here. Calgary's in the top 30 in North America. Edmonton's in the top 50 in North America. And we're expecting them to continue to grow. Um, back to the energy sector and the way that it's driving everything uh, as it relates to manufacturing. Uh, in your update, you talked about sales at $16 billion so far in 2022 for manufacturing. Trade up 23%. Um, how much of that can be attributed to the fact that we're seeing record high inflation, soaring energy prices? I mean, energy products alone are three quarters of the exports that we're talking about here. So is it really a function of just things that are happening on the global economic scene in terms of inflation and energy pricing? Well, I think it's just an indication that there's a demand for what Alberta does. And there's a demand for our product, there's a demand for our goods overall. There is some inflationary prices, as, you, as you've noted. Obviously, commodity prices are higher, ag prices are higher. You know, that's going to increase the revenue coming in. But again, it also shows that there's a demand for what we do. And we take a look at it as well. This is another industry that is really starting to hit its stride in Alberta. It's logistics, warehousing, distribution. If you're hanging out in the city of Calgary right now in the northeast there, you're seeing warehouse after warehouse after warehouse going up. Alberta's becoming very much a logistics hub, taking products from the Pacific coast, sort of Pacific Ocean, into Western Canada, as well as getting goods out to, into the other markets around the world. Alberta's very well positioned in the, in the logistics, manufacturing. We've seen aerospace as well. You have De Havilland with its 500-job manufacturing facility, establishing their headquarters in Calgary. Diversification is real here, and there's lots of opportunities in warehousing and manufacturing. You mentioned the... Uh constraints of a tight labor market. And we know, uh, anybody who's lived in this province knows there's a lot of people who have come from other parts of Canada to Alberta to work historically. It's happened over and over and over. Where are we in terms of attracting other Canadians to Alberta? Because I know we lost people for a few years. Um, Have we reversed that trend now? 
Well, in the middle of last year, we started to see the migration patterns in Alberta take a huge shift back to like kind of the 2014 era where people from across Canada started to descend and move to our province. And I spent a lot of time in Calgary. Calgary's my home. And you're starting to see license plates from other parts of Canada. That was the way it used to be around 2010 when you see license plates from Ontario and B.C., you're starting to see license plates again from other areas of Canada, which is really exciting, which shows to me that, you know, you read the data, you get the reports, but when you're starting to see it in your community, you're starting to talk to people that are an apartment block and they just moved there from Toronto or they just moved there from Kamloops, you're starting to see that activity happen. And that's an indicator that Alberta is growing and we're attracting talent. And I think a lot of it also comes down to quality jobs and affordability. You've got Edmonton is the most affordable big city in the entire country. Calgary is the second most affordable city in the, in the entire country. And there's one report showing that they're two of the top 10 most affordable cities in the world when you look at wages and cost of living. So we have big advantages right now, and this growth trajectory should continue throughout this year. And of course, as you say, it's jobs that will bring them here. Are we creating the right kind of jobs? I know if you take a look at where we were pre-pandemic, and that seems to be one of the benchmarks that we all look at now in terms of full-time jobs in the province of Alberta, we're still down. Almost 20,000, I think, uh, over 15,000. Anyway, so are we creating the right kind of jobs that will attract people here? I know that was a big push with the UCP. It's been jobs, jobs, jobs with corporate tax cuts and all the rest. Is it working? Are we getting the full-time, high-paying jobs that were promised? Well, we've created about 150,000 jobs since the beginning of last year. And we're expecting, again, throughout this year, continued job creation across many industries. Take a look at the film and television industry. We doubled that industry by making sure that we fixed the tax credit. We've got the largest TV series in Canadian history happening right now in Alberta. You talk to young people. They want to see that activity here in our province. It gives you a community pride. There's diversification. Tech sector as well. Like, Take a look at the tech sector market in across Alberta. There are thousands of jobs, high-paying jobs, right now in the tech sector in our province. So do you take a look at where we've been to where we are right now? Alberta is on a very fast trajectory to diversify. That's a good thing long-term. Can we stop? No. Do we have a long way to go to get to by 2030? You bet. But we're really on the right track right now on a whole bunch of different metrics for our economy. Speaking of being on that right track, and I, and I don't deny for a fact there's a lot of really positive indicators, how nervous are you or how worried are you about the fact that there's so much uncertainty right now when it comes we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic could it rear its head again next fall who knows there's some economists who certainly say that yes it will and that will be part of what contributes to a recession uh, by the end of this year or early next year we've got the situation in eastern europe i mean there's a lot of uncertainty um how how confident are you that this trajectory can continue well, we take a look at you know where we are right now and, and what Alberta has to offer the world. I mean, our agricultural products are in huge demand around the world. Our energy products are in big demand around the world. And we're becoming a leading hub for technology and innovation. That's going to serve us well long-term. That's why we're investing in things like artificial intelligence and quantum science to make sure that we have the right skill sets for the jobs of tomorrow as well in Alberta. We're very well positioned and much more diversified than we've ever been as a province, which is a good sign for where we need to get to. And when I take a look at this, like, what really motivated me to get into the politics was to make sure my kids had a future in this amazing place that we call home in Alberta. And I must say, from where we were to where we are, I, I'm much more encouraged that this is going to be a very strong decade for Alberta. Excellent. That's good to hear. Um, Minister, kept you longer than we said we would. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That is Doug Schweitzer, who is the Minister of Jobs, Innovation and Economy. I appreciate him joining us today to walk us through the fiscal update from last Friday. And that's the thing about stats. And I don't want it to sound like, hey, we're not doing well. 
in the province of Alberta. As you heard, there are a number of indicators that are, you know, GDP of 5.4, which is the best in the country. That's fantastic. Unemployment is coming down. But once you start to dig a little deeper into the stats, you can start to see that, okay, well, maybe it's not quite as rosy as we're talking about. Overall, very positive. But you know what? When you take a look at employment, we're still 6.5%. The rest of the country, nationally, is 5.3%. You take out the Maritimes, and Alberta is the highest. Okay, if you take out, you know, if you just compare it to mainland provinces, Alberta's unemployment rate remains the highest. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder process around invoking the emergency act is that you must hold a public inquiry into why you invoked the emergency act within 60 days of it ending and uh, the deadline for that was yesterday and uh, it was announced yesterday that the inquiry will be headed up by Justice Paul S. Rolo, who's an Ontario appeals court judge. He's been on the bench more than 20 years. He'll be leading this inquiry and he's been given 10 months by the federal government to probe everything. Uh, that led up to the Prime Minister's unprecedented invocation of the Emergencies Act and the government's use of the exceptional powers to bring an end to the convoy protests in Ottawa. Now we start to talk about, okay, what does this mean? Uh, what's the mandate? How broad is the reach? What are the limitations? So let's get into that. We're going to chat with Veronica Kitchen now. Veronica is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo and in the Basili School of international affairs. Veronica, thank you very much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So yeah, basically this is just meeting the requirement, right? In order to invoke the act, you have to commit to a public inquiry within 60 days. That's the way it works. Yeah, so the um, the Emergencies Act is designed for situations where the uh, federal government, this is a federal act, uh, requires powers that do not already exist in law. And so in order to provide some accountability for act built into the act is this mechanism for making sure that within a relatively short time you have a, a public inquiry. Now, in terms of that inquiry and what it will look into and what it will do and what powers it has, I've heard both positive and negative saying he has far-reaching powers to summon witnesses and documents and other people saying, yeah, but there's some limitations on what can be said because of cabinet privilege and things like that. How do you feel about the mandate he's been given and the powers he's been given? So Justice Rouleau has been asked to consider whether it was appropriate to invoke the Emergencies Act, but also whether it was effective to um, invoke the Emergencies Act. Um, he will have the power to summon witnesses to involve the the provinces if he is so inclined. Um, and so I think I think that he does have certainly at least some tools to 
answer those two questions. Um, some people have noted that uh, one of the limitations is that this is this does not feed into a criminal process, and in fact, the public inquiry is not to jeopardize um, any criminal uh, criminal charges that might come out of investigations. It's not the job of a public inquiry typically to to seek criminal accountability. This is about public and government accountability. Um, and the other limitation that some have pointed to uh, is that it's not totally clear yet um, what kinds of classified information yeah. Rouleau right. will have access to, and that because it becomes important because um, one of the ways that you might answer the question of was it appropriate relates to what kind of intelligence um, did various police services or um, or government agencies have about the kinds of threats that might have been um, posed by the the trucker convoy, and so it's it's not. I would say it's not clear yet what kind of information they'll have access to, um, but that will certainly matter in in terms of uh, Justice Rouleau's capacity to answer that question of was it appropriate. Yeah, you're right. I think that seems to be one of the overriding questions. And the public safety minister, Markham and Decino, said yesterday, you know, we don't even know what documents he may be seeking, so we aren't making any decisions now. And I heard some government officials saying, you know what, if you can promise that they won't be made public or they won't be released in such a way, we can possibly work that way. So that seems to be the sticking point. Is there any examples of how you can deal with classified information in a setting like this in a way that works, where they get access to it and it's still protected? Yeah, so um, certainly you could, uh, I don't, I, I, don't know enough about Rouleau. I just haven't had time to look into look into his background to know sort of whether he has yeah. clearance. I'm assuming he does not. Um, but there is there is, I think, a possibility that um, that uh, certain kinds of unclassified outcomes could be shared. Uh, there 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 may be quite a lot that can be shared related to intelligence that 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 originated as open source intelligence that he may be able to look at. Um, there may be mechanisms uh, where where he works with other kinds of um, individuals yeah. or bodies that have that kind of access to evaluate it. Those are imperfect solutions, but again, you know, even even an intelligence agency deals primarily in open source information, um, and so there there is a strong possibility that Rouleau will will be able to get. Uh, at least a decent amount of information that that he requires. But one of the very open questions about um, about was it appropriate was why did they invoke the Emergencies Act in the first place? Did the federal government know something that we, the public, did not know and do not know? Um, and I think that will be a very key question to answer, and it's, I think, not clear whether they will be able to answer that question with the kinds of sources they will be able to get access to. Do you think that's possibly what's behind the scope of this inquiry? I was I was kind of intrigued to find out, you know, in the announcement from the government, they say this inquiry will look into the declaration being issued and the measures that were taken, of course, but it will also examine the evolution of the convoy itself, looking into things like yeah. foreign funding, disinformation, sort of not necessarily the government's actions, but the convoy that they were dealing with and how it came to be the force that it was. And I think that that is important because it seems fairly clear that the convoy should not have become a national security threat. Um, it seems it seems very clear that uh, that the the police ought to have had the power to prevent that 
from right. happening before before they became so entrenched that it required the Emergencies Act to to disentrench them. And that's always a difficult a difficult balancing act when you can't see the future, um, because there there were certainly. Uh, Canadians who joined this as an act of legitimate protest, and you certainly don't want to um, prevent those people from their democratic right to legitimate pro- uh, legitimate protest. But we also know that there was this uh, that the, that the leaders and there was this kernel of more extreme thought, uh, and who were sort of seeking to use those. Um, those grievances that were the source for legitimate protest and and subvert them into uh, potential threats of violence and uh, and the possible the possible threat to attempt to overthrow the government. Certainly, the language was there. Again, it's not clear how much the actual threat was there yet. Uh, the timeline here: he's got about a year, not quite a year, to submit a final report. Does that seem to be uh, in keeping with what we would expect for something like this? It's going to be a big job. It is going to be a big job. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a scholar of public inquiries, so it's, it's, and I'm also not a lawyer, so it's difficult <laughs> for me to say whether it's enough time. I would note that, I mean, this was, this was a fairly constrained period of time. It's, it's not like, you know, public, public, a public inquiry, um, uh, such as the Gomery Inquiry that, that, that was dealing with something that went on for years, yeah. or like the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which is dealt with something that went on for generations. It is something that is fairly constrained in, in time and space. Um, and so with appropriate resources, 10, 10 months doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Interesting to watch for sure. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Veronica, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. That's Veronica Kitchen who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. It's a big deal for a lot of people. There's hundreds and hundreds of millions of people on Twitter each and every single day. I mean, there's not a politician on the planet who's not on there pretty actively. Um, Some of them use it extremely effectively. Some of them don't use it that much at all, but they're on there. Um, News breaks on there, uh, all kinds of things. We... You know, it's become sort of, uh, well, Elon Musk calls it the town square. Uh, that's what uh, that's how he sees it. And in a lot of ways, it is. Now, not everybody's on it. Not everybody wants to be on it. But those who are, definitely, you can see how it is that way. Now, all the concern about Twitter is because it's been, it was created by Jack Dorsey. There's been a board of directors that have run it. And it's, you know, you know all kinds of stories. The booting of Donald Trump, the banning of this person, all the discussion around Twitter. Well, now Elon Musk has come forward with a $44 billion takeover bid. And the board of directors of Twitter has said, yeah, okay, we accept your offer. Doesn't mean it's a done deal at this point because uh, it still has to go to the shareholders. It has to go to regulators, not only in the U.S., but in all the countries where Twitter operates, which is all the countries. So, I mean, it's pretty far down the road. It's a tremendous amount of money, and it looks like, you know, it's a good start. Anyway, he's, he's certainly on some solid footing. And uh, perhaps by the end of this year, Elon Musk will be the sole owner of Twitter. And he says he'll get rid of the shareholder setup, he'll, he'll take it private, um, and it will be his toy to do with as he sees fit. And that has a lot of people extremely concerned, for good reason. Um, let's find out if there's 
two sides to this. I mean, I, I understand the concern, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We're going to chat with Dr. Annabel Kwan Hase, who is a professor of information and media studies and sociology at Western University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate chatting with you once again. Oh, well, thank you so much, Shade, for having me. Now, this story has a lot of people really really up in arms and very, very concerned. Um, and I think part of the reason is Musk himself is a polarizing figure. Twitter itself is a polarizing platform. So you've got these two coming together. You throw in his rather long and complicated relationship with Twitter, and people are sort of wondering, what's going on here? What's the end play? What is Elon Musk's motivation? Do you think that's part of the, the question? Why is he doing this? Well, I think you've used all of the right, you know, uh, keywords here, polarizing figure, yeah. uh, visionary, though, I would add to that. So I think for sure, when we look at the motivation, this is very personal for Musk. I mean, he's made it very clear. Um, it's not like Tesla. It's not meant to be, you know, like a profit-making business. Uh, rather, this is about how he sees democracy, how he feels Twitter should be run. He's been frustrated with Twitter for a long time. And I think he sees the only option he sees to kind of dictate how Twitter will operate. And I mean, when I mean dictate here, really, in terms of the kind of nuance, like even at the level of the algorithm, is by him actually taking it over. He's called Twitter the digital town square. That's how he's characterized it. And he says, you know, matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. And he thinks all viewpoints should be welcome, at least for now. That, that's been his statement on Twitter as of yesterday. He's talked about free speech, making Twitter more free. Um, any idea what that might look like? Is he just going to be completely hands-off? I mean, it's, it's entirely up to him, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Shade. So, I mean, the first thing is it's important to kind of look at this historically. I think, you know, when um, Elon Musk made these kinds of, you know, broad statements, uh, people may be thinking, oh, th- this is fantastic. But Twitter, in fact, has been, you know, I mean, as he says, the public town square. So it's important to understand that, you know, he's not taking Twitter or he's not wanting to take it necessarily into a completely new direction. Like he wants Twitter to continue in its role. So, I mean, that that is the first important thing is that Twitter does support uh, free speech, you know, Anybody can make an account and voice their opinion. I think what he's looking at here is really a number of things. It's a, it's a reduction in regulation, so that's important. Uh, but also he said some things that I think sound pretty good, like, you know, a change in terms of how transparent Twitter yes. is. And, I mean, I think a lot of users and a lot of researchers were very frustrated with the black box design of a lot of these technologies where we have no idea what the algorithm is. So I think that's one important thing is that he said that he wants to open up that algorithm. Well, explain to me, if you can, the algorithm, because when I, when I take a look at Twitter, um, to me, it seems like the only thing that I'm going to see on Twitter is things that I choose to see. I, I select who I'm going to follow. I mean, I understand if you get into trending and all the rest, you can go off down on a rabbit hole. But in terms of what you see in your newsfeed, don't you have pretty good control over that on Twitter? Well, that is the thing. I mean, I think what Elon Musk is proposing is exactly that, for us to have a much greater understanding of what exactly are we seeing? Are we only seeing who we're following? Um, What is being pushed toward us? So those push notifications, the trends, I mean, they are really algorithmically based. So 
simple things like moving geography will give you different trending, you know, right. uh, yeah. topics and so on. So I think he's proposing to provide just greater transparency of how that all works and who's banned and when. Um, but I mean, that has a lot of repercussions because, you know, as users, we're sometimes actually happy to have an algorithm, you know, remove content that is inappropriate or, you know, bullying, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I think that tweaking the algorithm is always, you know, really complicated and there are always advantages and disadvantages. So, but greater transparency certainly, I think, is welcome. The other thing he's talked about that I think a lot of people are kind of excited about is removing bots and anonymous users. I think a lot of people have complained that it's the anonymity and the bots that contribute to the the toxicity of Twitter because people say things they would never say if they had to put their name or their face to it. What do you think about making anonymous accounts a thing of the past? Well, I think that's a really good point, Jade, and I think there's two important things to kind of note here. One is, you know, not all bots are the same. So I rely on Twitter on bots because one example is I'm really interested in anything reports that get published, researchers who give talks on disinformation on social media. So I follow bots. So I have bots that actually will alert me to reports that are important to my work. So I rely a lot on bots because I don't have time to be kind of searching and trying to find everything that gets published in that topic. So good bots are a good thing. <laughs> what we do when I get rid of is the bad bots that, that are spamming the Twitter environment with yeah. advertisement or repeated information. So I think, first of all, being to identify good and bad bots would be a good start. And Twitter already does some of that. So I think, you know, maybe Elon Musk wants to take that a step further, which is welcome. Now, in terms of the anonymity, I, I think... I don't know. I, I feel like he's overemphasizing that. I mean, only about 6% of accounts on Twitter are anonymous. And Twitter already, you know, asks users when they create an account to verify a lot of their information. So I'm not really sure that that will, you know, that that is really a big problem currently on Twitter. Hmm. I think he should be focusing on very different problems. And I think what he should be looking for is much more what you're talking to toxicity. So can we reduce harassment? Can we reduce hate speech? Uh, can we remove, you know, uh, tweets that incite violence? I think, to me, that would be a lot more important and have greater social impact. And I think a lot of the concern that people have is, okay, you've got a billionaire who now is going to be in sole control, entirely up to anything that crosses his mind, controlling this massive social media platform that affects things around the world. Um, is that a, a legitimate concern? I mean, obviously, we've already got that in a lot of instances with some of these other social media platforms and media outlets. We already have extremely rich, powerful people with a tremendous amount of control. Is this just one more example, or is this one a little bit different? Oh, I mean, and I think in some ways, it's, it's absolutely just a continuation of yeah. that. I think the reason why a lot of people are concerned um, is because he's so central. I mean... Elon Musk is a visionary, there's no doubt. I mean, he's really made a deep impact on so many areas of science and technology development, and some of them good, right? So, I mean, I think we're hoping here that, and he said that, that he's willing to do uh, trial and error. So we're hoping here that his approach um, will be one where he really does have the public fear in mind. But, of course, the danger here is if you have a single individual making decisions that affect, you know, one of the you know, social media platforms that has the greatest, you know, global reach and impact. I mean, 
without anybody really questioning him as, a, as a, such a powerful individual. I think, you know, you want to be surrounded by people that are constantly questioning your decisions and making sure that you're looking at so many different factors. Well, that's, I think, where the worry is. Is that really possible? You know, when, when you're so, so central to an organization, are you able to take all those opinions into account? And are people even able to kind of uh, provide him with the advice that he really needs? So, the bottom line, um, are you quitting Twitter? <laughs> are you going to be, I mean, so many people are abandoning the platform. How do you feel about where it might be headed? Well, I, I think it, it's very difficult to say at this point. I think some of his ideas, as I said, I see as positive. I mean, I think certainly um, opening up the algorithm, certainly greater transparency is always welcome. Um, I think people who have left Twitter um, are very disillusioned with social media in general. Um, I think most of us have spent a long time and a lot of, you know, I would say, you know, um, effort building, you know, crafting our network, following, you know, other professionals, journalists. So, you know, we wouldn't give that up, you know, um, you know, that quick. I mean, for me to leave Twitter, it would take a lot. Um, But I think we're all really concerned. I think we're all more watchful. We're, you know, we're going to be following uh, Twitter very closely. We don't want Twitter to become another 4chan or one of those, you know, very radical platforms. I think at that point, there's a possibility for a new platform to form where users will gravitate to. And we've seen that in the past. I mean, um, it's not like Twitter will remain central if it doesn't maintain exactly. its um, possibility. Yeah. People ultimately have the choice. Um, doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Great insight. Oh, well, thank you so much, Shade. Thank you. That is Dr. Annabelle Kwan Hase, who is a professor of information and media studies and sociology at University of Western. And she's right. You know, I mean, when you. Musk is, is taking on the risk here in terms of what he's. First of all, Twitter has really lagged far behind Facebook and Google in terms of monetizing what they do. Um, they've never been able to cash in the way that Facebook and Google has. And he says he can fix that and make it profitable. Um, we'll see. And if he doesn't, it's on him. He'll be the one that fails, right? Um, so you got $44 billion tied up in this, and we'll see what the reaction is at this point. I mean, if it happens, it's just, I can't get over the fact that so many people, I mean, it was trending on Twitter. This is the best part, too. It's on Twitter trending that leaving Twitter. I mean, just leave Twitter then. Don't You don't have to make an announcement. So, this, But anyway, that's that's how things go in the social media world. Thanks for listening today. If you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.